following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So today is Epiphany Sunday, and uh, for the next several weeks we'll be observing a season that we're calling the season after Epiphany, for lack of a better term. Sometimes the church calendar is creative and sometimes not so much, Uh, but Epiphany is a special day in the church year which is observed differently in different parts of the church. So it becomes a very interesting conversation about what, what it means and why we have a day on the church calendar called Epiphany Sunday. And yesterday, technically speaking, was the day of Epiphany, and today's the, Sunday, the Epiphany Sunday. Um, but here's one of the texts from the lectionary for Epiphany Sunday. It comes from Ephesians 3, and part of it says this. Surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the Apostle Paul is speaking here of the mystery of Christ, a mystery that has been revealed. And it's that idea of a mystery being revealed that's the basis of our observance or celebration of the day of Epiphany. You you think of the word of Epiphany as like suddenly the light bulb appearing over your head, right? When something that was confusing before suddenly makes sense. Something you didn't understand before, suddenly you do now understand. And like a light switch coming on, the mystery has been revealed. But what is the mystery? In some traditions, they call this day theophany, which is a a word that means the revealing of a deity, the manifestation or appearance of a deity of God. And so epiphany is the revealing of the mysteries of God through the person of Jesus Christ, his son. So now I know some of you are church calendar nerds and you already know the answer to the question I'm about to ask you. So I'm going to ask you to just to like... hmm? Just for a second, those of you who don't know what we're observing on Epiphany Sunday, let me ask you to think about what you know about the stories of Jesus, and what do you think would be a good story from the gospel, a good um, event in the life of Jesus that could be read on a day when we're supposed to be celebrating or talking about the mysteries that are revealed, of Jesus making God known to us somehow. Shout it out if you are a, a person who knows some Bible stories but don't know exactly what today is about. Any ideas? Maybe how Jesus healed a person who was really sick. That's a great example, Carlton. Thank you. It's not the one that we're going to look at today, but that would be something that could be an example of Jesus revealing a mystery. Sure. What else? No? Well, no other guesses? Uh, John the Baptist when Jesus is baptized. That's not a bad example, as you'll see in just a minute. Interesting. Jesus walking on water. Very mysterious moment in the Gospels. Yes, that could be. That could work. Right. Well, here's the interesting thing about Epiphany. Different parts of the church use different stories in the Bible for their reading on the day of Epiphany. So, in the Western Church, which would include all Roman Catholics and almost all Protestants, we have one story that we use to illustrate Epiphany. And in the Eastern Church, which is all the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox and the Coptic Christians, 
they have a totally different story that they use on the day of Epiphany. Two different stories that reveal Jesus in a different way. So we'll get to the Western version, which, you know, we're Western people. We're going to use the Western story for the most part today. But the Eastern story, Aaron will be happy to learn, is the baptism of Jesus. Do you remember the story of Jesus being baptized? He's baptized in the Jordan River. He comes up out of the water and the dove comes down from the sky, lands on him. And the voice from heaven thunders out, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You know that story? That's the revealing of God as the, or of Jesus as the Son of God. That makes a lot of sense on Epiphany. Right? So I am going to tell you about the Western observation in just a minute, but first I have to tell you about one incredibly awesome Epiphany tradition that happens in the Eastern Church. So this is a Bulgarian tradition. So who knows where Bulgaria is? Where's Bulgaria? Yeah, it's uh, right. It's east of Slovakia. It's a bit <laughs> it's uh, if you pictured like um, Italy, the boot, right? Which way does the boot go? That way? I don't know. The, the, you bend the pasta and you put it in the pot, and the, I don't know. Then there's Greece. You go a little bit farther east from Greece, uh, or from Italy, you get to Greece. North of Greece, north of Turkey, south of Romania. That's Bulgaria. Uh, latitudinally, it's roughly equivalent to New York State. At least when I looked at the map and went. It was kind of like there. So climate-wise, the point is, it's similar to what we experience uh, right now. So yesterday's the day of Epiphany. And do you know what the Bulgarians do on the day of Epiphany? Well, they get all the men of the town together, and the priest takes a cross and throws it into the river. I have a picture of this that we can put on the screen. You can see the cross has been thrown in the river. All of these Bulgarian people are now diving into the river because whoever gets to the cross first gets a special blessing on that day, right? So uh, the next picture shows uh, somebody who has captured the cross. I... I'd like to think that that little child of maybe seven did not dive to the bottom of the river to catch the cross, that maybe a grown-up did and gave it to him. But you never know. Bulgarian children are very sturdy from what I hear. So remember the geography of Bulgaria. (laughs) What do you think their river feels like right now? What do you think the Genesee River feels like right now? Could you imagine if we had this epiphany uh, observations yesterday? Who would be diving in the river? I would be, of course, playing the role of the priest (laughs) with heavy robes. (laughs) I would throw the cross into the river, and then who would dive in after it? Raise your hand if you would dive in the river after it. No? Okay. Shane would, yes. (laughs) He's probably the only one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so... As I was saying before, the Eastern celebration of Epiphany kind of makes sense, right? Not that. Not, I mean, the jumping in a river on January 6th does not make sense. But the idea that you would observe uh, Epiphany thinking about the baptism of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus as God's Son, that does kind of make sense. But what do we think about in the West? What's the thing that we talk about in the West on the day of Epiphany and on Epiphany Sunday? Well, for us, I actually think it's a little bit less of an obvious revelation, We'll have to dig a little bit to figure out what it means. But our story is the story of the Magi, sometimes known as the three kings or the the wise men from the east who came to meet the child Jesus. So what is it about that story that makes it a revelation, an epiphany, a revealing of a mystery? 
Well, it might be helpful if we know a little bit more about the characters involved in the story. That might give us a clue as to why that story is chosen on Epiphany Sunday in the Western Church. So these wise men from the East, we think of them, you know, based on songs as kings, right? They're not really kings. What they are more like is um, priests, uh, specifically priests of a, of, a, of a pagan religion known as Zoroastrianism. Anybody know what that is off the top of your head? Could you all give me a big summary of that if I wrote, ask you to write a little essay? I don't know much about it. But I can tell you it's a pre-Islamic religion from Persia. And the uh, Zoroastrian religion was centered on astrology. Right? Now, you don't have to be too much of a Bible nerd to know what the Old Testament especially teaches about astrology. Right? What do good Jewish people uh, at the time of Jesus think about astrologers? Right? Is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Can we get that far? It's a thumbs down. It's a thumbs way down. That's not really how they describe it in the Bible, but it will do for now. Astrology is not spoken highly of in the Bible. It's something that uh, very clearly should be avoided. And these particular wise men from the East, they're called um, magi, right? which is a, actually is a kind of an anglicized slash Latinized version of a Greek word, magos. The other, way, the other place that that appears in the Bible is a little bit later in the New Testament with the book of Acts and Simon the Sorcerer. Now, if you know the story of Simon the Sorcerer, is that a thumbs-up person or a thumbs-down person? Simon is another thumbs-down person, okay? So this group of people, they're not really the ones you'd expect to be part of the story of God's work in the world. And so you can begin to see maybe why this is chosen as an example of the revelation of God through Jesus. The unveiling of the mysteries. So let's read the passage together. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. You can just listen along if you prefer, but if you want to find it, you can look at Matthew 2. And in the Red Bibles, it's page 783. So it's literally the first page of the New Testament in this particular um, printing of the Bible. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at, his rise, at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, and then the prophet is quoted here, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. End quote. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring, him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. 
Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. So the big idea here, the big revelation of mystery that's happening here in this story is that uh, redemption is being made available to Gentiles. So for all good observant Jews, redemption came through their lineage, their heritage. They were heirs to the promise of Abraham. And those who were outside of that family, that biological family, were not part of that promise except by complicated conversion methods, which almost never happened. So the idea that redemption through the Son of God would become available to Gentiles would become much more clearly and fully developed later. And all kinds of theology gets built around that, and all kinds of doctrine gets built around that. But in this moment, this first revealing of Christ to Gentile people Happens, it happens when Jesus is a little toddler, probably, right? So it's prob- we see in the nativity scenes that the shepherds are here and the sheep and Mary and Joseph and the baby and the wise men. It's probably not the way it worked out. You can divine some clues from the, what happens with Herod later that Jesus was probably not a baby anymore, like a toddler probably. But how amazing is it that God would reveal himself through this little tiny child to the Gentiles. And this becomes something that we all sort of take for granted, right? Because Christianity has become um, much less Jewish over the centuries, hasn't it? And it's become actually, frankly, much less Eastern over the centuries as well for those, those of us in the West, ironically. But the idea then that God would draw these Gentiles to his son, that was something that was truly remarkable. And I think it's worth our spending just a few minutes kind of digging a little deeper to think about that, why it happened and how it happened. What did the wise men from the east say when they came into the area where he was? Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we heard a voice in a burning bush and have come to pay him homage. That's not what they said. Where's the child who's been born king of the Jews? For we had a vision while we were worshiping in the temple. And we've come to pay him homage. That is also not what they said. Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we were doing everything holy and right that good God-fearing people should do. And we've come to pay him homage. No, they said none of those things. What did these pagan astrologer priests say? Where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? Because we observed his star at its rising and we've come to pay him homage. Think about the import of that sentence. God drew these pagan priests to his son Jesus, not using anything familiar to Jesus' Jewish parents, or any of his future followers, but using astrology, the very practice that they knew inside and out, but which was roundly denounced by the entire tradition to which Jesus is actually born. How incredible is that? Can you imagine how Joseph and Mary must have felt when they knock at the door and then there's this whole retinue of 
uh, of Persian astrologer priests who want to find their son, Jesus. Later, Paul would write, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, not through their parentage, but through the gift of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And it started with these magi, these wise men from the east. I don't have to press very hard on this for you to get where I'm going, do I? You understand where I'm leading you in this little sermon, don't you? Who are the people in our world right now? Who are our magi? Who are our wise men from the east or wise women from the east? Who are our people in our world who are outside of our circles? who do not perceive God in any of the ways that we understand God ought to be perceived, but who God might have something to say to, but people who God might want to draw to Jesus. And how many times have we as the church gotten in the way because we don't like the way that they are able to perceive what God might be showing them? So I, I have two endings to this sermon today. One for one group of people, one for another group of people. I have two endings to this sermon today. One that ends with scripture and one that ends with poetry. Two endings to the sermon. The first is for, for all my Christian friends in the room. The reality is that we have a lot of people who are Christians who come to Artisan and a lot of people who are not Christians who come to Artisan. Many people who might be listening on podcasts who do not take that name for themselves, who who aren't in that place, who don't have those same beliefs, but they're here or they're listening for, for, for one reason or another. So I'm going to end this sermon in a way that both groups of people, I think, can appreciate and understand. For Christians, for people of the book, I want you to remember the text that we read at the call to worship. Were you here for the call to worship when we read Isaiah 60? Do you remember these words? Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away. Your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Yes, we see pictures of this one occasion in the Gospel of Matthew uh, in that text from Isaiah from centuries before. But we see a picture of the bigger thing that God is doing as well. And I have a question for all of you who are Christians, who are people of the book, who accept these words but maybe don't quite get what's trying, what, what God might be trying to say. Do your hearts actually thrill and rejoice at the idea that, that your sons, your daughters, your children might come from far away? Do we actually celebrate the idea that people who are so far from God that they have no beginnings of a concept of how to worship in this place in this way, that God might show them something about Jesus without anything that we know or say or do? Or do we sometimes not quite like that idea so much? Do we recoil ever so slightly at that? Do we shrink at the idea a little bit that God might decide to do something radical, like throw up a star in the sky for a pagan astrologer. That God might violate a sacred religious principle that we thought was so important and so central. Like the idea that if you're a Gentile, you, you're not part of the family of God. 
So while you're thinking on those questions, Christian people, I want to talk to the people who are maybe more on the fringe of it, maybe far from it. I often joke, maybe somebody dragged you into this place today against your will. Maybe you've been coming for a while and sort of just sort of thinking about it and checking it out and and there's a little spark there and you're not sure what to make of the spark. Because sometimes the idea of exploring Christianity is terrifying and frankly painful. (laughs) Um, If you've ever read Anne Lamott's conversion story, uh, (laughs) um, Traveling Mercies is the book, Uh, her conversion, her statement of conversion, well, it's not suitable for sermons. I'll just say that. Um, You should read it. It's interesting. It illustrates the point that sometimes uh, conversion happens and it's not exactly all sunshine and roses. But for those of you in that camp who are kind of just thinking about this, I want to offer you a few lines of T.S. Eliot's poem, The Journey of the Magi. I firmly believe that every person who cares about the story uh, of the Magi should read Matthew 2, 1 through 12, and should read T.S. Eliot's The Journey of the Magi, every epiphany. So I'm going to read you (laughs) portions of it. I suddenly became Irish. I'm going to read you portions of the poem right now. Um, Was T.S. Eliot Irish? I don't even think so. Um, I think he's English. Well, same thing, right? So, (laughs) wow, we are way off the track. I'm so sorry. I'll read you portions of the poem now, but the rest of it is brilliant. I encourage you to read it. This is the, 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 the Magi recounting the story of their journey. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for the journey, and such a long journey, the ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Anybody else wake up? It's a negative two today. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. If you're a person who's on the fringe of faith, who's not quite there yet, who's maybe moving in that direction, but you're not sure it's the right thing, you, I guarantee, have voices singing in your ears telling you that this is all folly, that this is foolishness. What are you even doing? Who's the voice that you hear in your head as you make this journey toward Jesus through the darkness and the cold and the uncertainty? Is it a parent, a roommate? a spouse, a favorite professor? Who's the person who will think you are the most ridiculous if you actually get to Jesus? Here's how the poem concludes and how the story for the Magi, Eliot imagines the story for the Magi concludes. And I wish I could tell you it's, it's beautiful and peaceful, but it's, it's not. Here's the end of the poem. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. It's interesting. You know, I'm 
preaching this message, inviting people who are not people of faith to become people of faith. And it's supposed to be like, everything's going to be warm and happy and fine for you if you'll just come to the altar and we'll sing just as I am and, and you'll, you'll get your prayer and you'll be a Christian and everything from that day on will be fine. But the truth is, every conversion includes a death and that's very painful. There's a lot of things to let go of. Jesus talks about, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. You may have to go to the same death that I'm going to. He says, uh, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So if you're in this moment of, this place of transition, you're thinking about what will happen if you actually say yes, finally, to Jesus. The truth is, there will be a death. There will be some things that just aren't part of you anymore. And by the way, people of faith, people from the first group, some of you know this acutely because I've talked to you recently. I've been through it myself. There's, there are more deaths along the way, aren't there? There are more times when you have to journey through the night listening to the people behind you, where you came from, telling you that where you are going is foolishness. It's all folly. Christianity, a million little deaths. Join me. <laughs> I'm the best evangelist ever. (laughs) This is the truth, my friends. It's the truth. But there's life that comes after it. The grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies bears much fruit. And the Magi made it all that way, and their lives were changed forever, and they found a birth at the end. They found this, this little new beautiful thing, this new life, this new opportunity, this, this perfect symbol of the fact that God had all of this stuff for you in the past that led you to this place, and now there's something new, and it's terrifying, but it's beautiful. And you might not know what it looks like yet, but you know it's time. So wherever you might be on that journey, coming to Jesus for the first time ever or coming to Jesus from a new angle that you didn't even know was there a year ago or two years ago, know that only in death is there resurrection and that it might be time to let go of what you're leaving behind once and for all and to say yes to this new thing that God is doing once and for all. Let's pray together. Gracious God, who reveals yourself to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, we are thankful for this example of people so far from you, we thought, who you nonetheless reached out to in the only way they could understand and drew to your Son, We pray that you would reach out to us with stars in the skies of our own lives. Help us to shake off the expectations of religiosity so that we can see the true work that you are doing. Give us courage to let go and let die those things which are behind us and to say yes to the new life that you have ahead for us. Give us strength and joy in sharing that truth with those around us. May there be fruitfulness from the seeds that fall to the earth and die. We pray these things.
through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I invite you to come and receive communion this morning. As always, our response to God's work in our lives and God's voice through the scriptures is to come to the table of the Lord, which is a symbol, after all, of the death and resurrection of Christ. In fact, the apostle says that when we celebrate this, we proclaim his death until he returns. Artisan celebrates an open communion table, which means that all who are following Jesus are invited to come, no membership required. The band's going to continue to lead us in some songs. Uh, There'll be a member of the prayer team who'd be happy to pray with you. But come and receive the body and blood of the Savior, broken for you, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Our table is open. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.